You're listening to a Fit Plus Love production. One of the very first things you learn in exercise physiology is the fuel pathway. And you go through all your quick carbohydrates. But in order to get into fat burning, you need some carbohydrates, right? Again, based on male data. But when we look at female data as well, you do need some carbohydrate in order to get into fat burn. But when we look specifically at female physiology and where all of this occurs in the mitochondria, we as women have more of the protein there to burn fatty acids. So we have a greater capacity already in the muscle to burn fatty acids. We have estrogen that spares carbohydrate and stimulates lipase to burn more fatty acids. We have progesterone that inhibits the body from accessing muscle glycogen. So it makes you rely more on blood glucose. And these feed over to low hormone state as well. So we have the increased proteins in the muscle. We have already differences in blood glucose. We have shuttling from the liver and the muscle to other parts of the body. So women rely heavily on blood glucose, where again, men rely on carbohydrate stores within the muscle and the liver. So when you look at metabolic efficiency, training or fasted training or fat burning, it's again based on male data, looking at how are we going to increase fatty acid use increase those proteins of mitochondria to burn fatty acids and to spare muscle muscle glycogen. Women are already there. Our bodies are already there for maximum fatty acid utilization, for sparing carbohydrate from the liver and the muscle because of these inherent sex differences within the muscle and also the hormones. That was Dr. Stacey Sims. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hello, welcome, and welcome back to the Marnie on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Salop. Today, I sync up with the visionary Dr. Stacy Sims, one of the brightest minds in science and nutrition in the world of endurance sports and beyond. Stacey Sims is an applied researcher, innovator, and entrepreneur in human performance, specifically sex differences in training, nutrition, and environmental conditions. She is the author of the world-renowned book, Roar, which was written to explain sex differences in training and nutrition and challenges the existing norm for women in exercise, nutrition, and health. She also has a super popular TED Talk all about how women are not small men. Her contributions to the international research environment and sports nutrition industry have established a new niche in sports nutrition and established her reputation as the expert in sex differences when it comes to training, nutrition, and health. During our conversation, I get the inside scoop on where Stacey's passion for exercise physiology and nutrition began. We talk about nutrition for endurance sports training from fueling day-to-day and racing. Stacey completely puts the kibosh on sweat tests, intermittent fasting for women, and gels. Plus, we talk about the power of hormones, nutrition that can disrupt your gut, and how to find the right macronutrient balance for your body. This eye-opening conversation is full of great insight and advice, so get ready to discover and learn. Plus, Stacy shares her favorite workouts and training sessions that are currently fueling her for success. Before we get started, shout out to Marnie on the Move podcast sponsors, Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is the ultra personalized nutrition platform that analyzes your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to help you optimize your body from the inside out. They are my go to for understanding my inner health, looking at my blood levels, and getting great nutritional insight. Inside Tracker transforms your body's data into meaningful insights and a customized action plan of the science backed 
recommendations you need to reach your goals. Take control of your health and wellness. Unlock the power of your potential. And use our code CHEERSMARNIE for 25% off. Now, on to my conversation with Dr. Stacey Sims. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Before we dive fully into your book and everything else about your philosophy and all the great things that you do, like where did this all begin for you? Getting into physiology, working in sports nutrition. and When I was a teenager, I really wanted to be a chef. My parents were like, no, 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 you're not going to be a chef. That's not the lifestyle we want for our daughter. So when I started undergrad, um, my other love was poli-sci and French because I speak French and I wanted to work for the UN. And I was so bored in every poli-sci class. So I went over and took an exercise physiology class as a kind of like a, an elective and loved it. And so just really got into the ex-phys side of things and merging that with the interest in food and trying to understand how those things kind of came together and understanding metabolism. It, they all kind of came together at this one kind of point within university. Um, and the other driving factor is I was a vegetarian that ended up from San Francisco right in the Midwest at a point where no one understood what a vegetarian was. So I was like trying to fight to get food as well as being on the crew team. So all these things came together when I was trying to really like fend for myself as an athlete. So you start looking at the food aspects, you start looking at the lab aspects and understanding that there really is no information out there for women. How do you match what you're trying to do for training on limited food intake with regards to not having availability? So just all these questions in an 18, 19 year old girl's head and just really trying to say, wait a second, this isn't right. So that was like the boiling factor. And then as things started progressing, they all started eking out into all of these questions. I wanted answers to help me, my teammates, other people that were racing or high level. And it just kind of started with all these experiences I had when I landed from California in Indiana. I love the overall concept and philosophy and mission around your brand that women are not small men. Can you unpack this for me? What does that mean, obviously, beyond the surface yeah. value of what it means? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, so I uh, had a conversation actually yesterday with a guy at the gym who um, wanted to know what I did. And I was like, well, I study female athlete physiology and sex differences. And he's kind of looking at me. I was like, well, basically, it's like, you know, the tagline, women are not small men. But what does it mean? It means that, you know, when you are pregnant and they're trying to identify what is the sex of the baby, you have XX versus XY, typically, right? And so those are sex differences. Those are biological sex differences. We are born with sex differences, which is why um, women are more resilient to stress, why our um, muscle mitochondria use more free fatty acids, why our hearts are are smaller, our lung capacity is smaller, why our metabolism is different during exercise. So all these little things stem not only from the genetic material of XX, but also the exposure of, of our sex hormones, which is what endemically makes women, women. And he's like, why is this not talked about in so many other places? It's like, because no one really thinks about it. They think about the external touch points as being different. You go into a shop and there's the women's section of clothes and perfume and, you know, makeup and soap and all the stuff geared for women on the external touch points. But when it comes to the internal touch points, no one has really identified or looked at what are those differences until pretty recently. And I also said that one positive thing of COVID is the fact that there are so disparate outcomes for men versus women, but the outcomes are worse for men that now all of a sudden they're like, what is going on? Why are the women coming out so much better? So it's the very first time when everyone in the medical society is now going, wait, there's sex differences, what's going on? So it's a one positive thing, because now we know, like when we say women are not small men, people are like, oh, yeah, okay, I get it now. Women respond differently and we need to look at them differently. And having that conversation and having disparate outcomes is what I've really been trying to push. 
what is it about our hormones when it comes to nutrition and performance that we need to think about as women that are definitely overlooked in just generally speaking nutrition and performance? There is a caveat though, when we talk about training versus performance, because there's a lot of literature out there that is saying there's no difference in performance. So we talk about menstrual cycle phases, oral contraceptive pill, perimenopause, postmenopause, and they're talking about that one point in time performance. There really is no discernible difference in a phase orientation because the psychological supersedes the physiological. But when we're talking about training and we're talking about sex hormones and training, we're talking about nutritional changes, there is a big influence of estrogen, progesterone, and somewhat testosterone. So we're talking about how does estrogen affect um, our nutritional status, right? Right. We know that when estrogen goes up, it's anabolic. You're able to build lean mass easier. It counters lower levels of progesterone. So you're able to uh, take in protein, use it for lean mass development. You're able to recover better. But as progesterone starts to come up, it antagonizes estrogen. Progesterone is catabolic. The reason why progesterone is catabolic is it wants to break down everything to provide the building blocks for building the uterine lining. So when we're looking from a nutritional standpoint, in the low hormone phase when progesterone and estrogen are low, this is where we can access carbohydrate well, where we cover well. We do need a little bit more protein than what the, the general recommendations are, right. just because there's so many different avenues for protein uptake for women. But as soon as estrogen comes up and you ovulate, there's a metabolic switch where estrogen then spares uh, carbohydrate from the muscle. We start using more free fatty acids. Progesterone also um, inhibits your body's ability to access uh, glycogen because it wants that carbohydrate for building uterine lining. So as soon as ovulation hits and we go into that high hormone phase, we need to look at, at um, supplying a little bit more carbohydrate when we're training because women rely more on the blood levels of carbohydrate, not necessarily the muscle and liver levels. We need more protein across the board because progesterone breaks down everything. So we need more protein for brain function, for lean mass development, for keeping us out of that breakdown state. And then we're looking at how estrogen crosses the blood brain barrier and affects our mood, it affects serotonin, affects dopamine. Then we need to look at having more protein on board to counter some of the receptor sites in the brain that estrogen hypersensitizes. And this so, is this is related to performance like training or this is just in general? In, in general. Yeah, that's what I in thought. General. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When we talk about performance on the day, right? If you know that you have a really high intensity session and, and a race and it falls three or four days before your menstrual cycle you will have already dialed in the fact that you need a little bit more carbohydrate. So you're right. going to bring that in, right? So it's like you use training to see how your body fluctuates, you're tracking, you're seeing how you feel, you're manipulating your fuel a little bit around high intensity sessions so that when you have a race that occurs in the high hormone phase, it's not a negative self-talk. It's not like, oh, I can't do this because I'm in the high hormone phase. It's sweet. I know I need a little bit more carbohydrate and I'm going to nail it. Yeah. So it's understanding how these fuel switches in training so that you can dial it in on the day. You know, I was reading your book, Roar, and I was reading about women and how we've been told if we're menstruating that we shouldn't race or we shouldn't be overly active and how that is actually not true and how as athletes, people are always looking in their nutrition and monitoring their levels, but just in general, like people in general need to start really monitoring these things and learning how to take advantage of it. It's the upsurge really of tracking, like because women have been marginalized so much in society and we have these myths, these prevailing myths around how we should feel. And I've gotten into a lot of discussions about, you know, performance around um, that transient phase between the end of the high hormone phase and the beginning of your period. Right. And how women are always, oh, it's that time of the month. You have PMS. You have bad cramping. You shouldn't be doing anything. You should be tucked up in bed. You should be taking it easy. And it's like, well, yeah, that's a prevailing myth. But when you start empowering women to understand that as those hormones drop, yes, you have some cramping. But if you move, you're countering the inflammation that's making those cramps. You know that the hormones have dropped. You can access carbohydrate. You can go hard. You can hit that intensity. 
And when women start thinking about it in that positive scope, oh, my period's here. One, I'm healthy. That means my endocrine system is working. And two, this is the time where I can recover well and hit it hard. And so when you start making that that switch, that mindset switch, it's amazing how empowered women feel around their period. So it's that conversation that still needs to be had about let's not marginalize women anymore unless, of course, they have um, heavy menstrual bleeding or some other kind of dysmorphia around the menstrual cycle and the fact that they do have really bad cramping. But then we say, you know, that's not normal because we don't even talk about what is normal from a bleeding standpoint. Right. Right. We're just now starting to talk about women have periods, but no one has talked about what is normal. So if you and your mom and your grandmother always have had heavy menstrual bleeding, you think that's normal. You don't seek help. We know that over 40% of female athletes have heavy menstrual bleeding. Right. But you can get help by going and getting an IUD or progestin-only pill. You just need a little bit of progestin, and that completely eliminates that whole heavy menstrual bleeding, cramping issue and you start to have more of a normal cycle and understanding what normalcy is. Right. And then that's the other empowerment. So it's like having a conversation around, yeah, women have periods. That's great. We know that you can train according to your cycle. We know that these um, sex hormones can allow you to really dial in training and recover well. But we also have the conversation about what is normal. What is a normal bleed pattern? What does right. it feel like, right? Because again, it's not talked about and we've been marginalized so much about it. Like because of that prevailing myth of women are delicate flowers that they should be hiding when they right. have their period. Well, and also like a lot of young athletes will stop getting their period when they're training. And that's another thing which right. is a big topic of discussion back in the day you know, people just overlooked it. I mean, even I, as an athlete, when I started training and I maybe dropped like 10 pounds or five pounds, which was a lot for me back like 10, 15 years ago, like I had the my entire menstrual cycle changed. I mean, it completely shifted yeah. and I was 38 years old. It wasn't like time for me to start going through menopause, but because I had right. seriously increased my training. Yeah, and that that's, it does happen. And that's the other prevailing myth that when yeah. you lose your period, that means you're training hard enough. We've had professional coaches stand up in conferences just in the past couple of years saying, we know our athletes are ready to race world champs when they've lost their period. And we're like, whoa, what are you talking about? Yeah, it's right? horrible. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's like when we talk about it and a lot of young girls, when they start getting their periods, older women, um, you know, like you or, or in their later 30s yeah. when they pick up sport again and start training hard, it's that disruption between energy balance, right? So if we're not getting enough in to allow our bodies to just exist, and then we're also trying to put training stress, then it signals back to the body that we should be reproducing. Right. So it shuts down areas in the brain that allow our body to have luteinizing hormones, which allow us to ovulate and so when that shuts down your period stops so this is why we also say like your period's an ergogenic aid in the fact that it tells you that you're a healthy athlete it should be encouraged to not for people not to be afraid and if that starts to happen for them to take a deeper look at their hormones and what's happening and not to worry about increasing their training but maybe look at their nutrition as well yeah and one of the first things i tell people when they're um training upticks is fuel in and around your training because your body's under stress. It needs fuel at this point. And if you don't fuel post-training, you stay in this long breakdown state. So it's as if you aren't getting enough food and signals your brain that you should be reproducing. So it starts that downward shift of your thyroid, downward shift of your whole endocrine system. So fueling in around your training is so important. And like what kind of fueling is really important? Yeah, it also depends on what you're doing. So if you just had breakfast, then that can be your fuel for your hour to hour and a half session. And then you're recovering afterwards with um, protein and carbohydrate. It could be a snack, could be a next meal, whatever. But if you're getting up first thing in the morning and you haven't eaten, then it could be half a banana, it could be a protein latte, could be a piece of toast, just something small to bring your blood sugar up, signal to your body there's a fuel coming in. And then an hour 
you know, you don't really need that much fuel. But then if you're going over an hour, then you might think about taking some dried uh, fruit like figs or chomps or, you know, glucose tabs or something to bring your blood sugar up. And when you get out, have your breakfast. I just totally took us down the training path because I'm like one track. If somebody is not an athlete, a lot of this is still relevant. Uh, just totally maybe relevant. A, a, like a lower level. You don't need to eat as much as say we're talking about with fueling and carbohydrates and protein because we're also talking about expending energy and 12-hour training weeks or you know 20 30-hour training like that's where we're kind of well where I'm focusing <laughs> yeah but even like we've done research over here and and in the states as well we know that over 50% of recreational female athletes are in low energy state yeah right so it stems a lot from the diet trends of doing fasted training or busy lives where you're going in, you're doing training and then immediately like going to work and you might have a protein shake because that's the thing to do. But then you get to work and you like don't have any time to have a real meal until lunch and maybe you're not even having that, right? So you have this whole long day and then you get home and you're booking your calories and so you're in a low energy. So the fueling in and around training is appropriate for every woman who does any kind of purposeful exercise. Right. It could be like an hour exercise or somebody who's, you know, training for a marathon or triathlon or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And people just forget it because, you know, in the recreational set, they're all about, oh, I want to change my body composition. And there's still that prevailing myth of calories in, calories out. And that's where a lot of these missteps in that recreational set happens. But when we talk about people who are training for a marathon, a 70.3, Ironman, Olympic, distance, any of those, they're a little bit more focused because they know they have a couple of training sessions in the day, or they might have interval session at night and then another session in the morning. So they're a little bit more conscious they need fuel. Not maybe as good as you should be, but... right. So you talked about body composition, and I was just immediately thinking about how there's a certain mix, macronutrients, that women need that are really different than men. Yeah, so talk to me about that. Yeah, so um, one of the first things is that women and men are different when they're fueling during exercise, what their bodies do. So men will burn through their carbohydrate stores and their plasma stores pretty quickly and then switch into fat burning. Women, regardless of what hormone phase they're in, rely more on blood glucose, and they'll tap a little bit more into muscle glycogen in the low hormone phase. But when you get the high hormone phase, where plasma glucose, fatty acids, and amino acids. So our fueling mechanisms are different. We're looking at it from that perspective. Women need more protein across the board because everything in our body uses amino acids, from brain signaling to lean mass development to um, satiation, gut, everything, right? So when we're talking about body composition and body composition change, the first and foremost thing is fueling, like we talked about, around your training when your body's stressed because that helps keep cortisol down. It signals the body that you're not under too much stress so we don't have to conserve body fat. And then when you're increasing protein, Protein in itself, we know if you have a high protein diet and a little bit of calorie restriction, your body doesn't go into this tizzy of low energy availability, low energy response. But for men, the threshold is different. So for men, the threshold for sensitivity of low calorie intake or low carbohydrate intake is around 15 calories per kilogram of body weight. But for women, it sits around 35 so we know there's that discrepancy. Yes. Right. And we don't we don't talk about this. So we're talking about low energy and these thresholds is because men have one area in the hypothalamus of this neuropeptide called kispeptin. Now kispeptin is the driver for our endocrine system. So the threshold is not as sensitive for men because there's one area, but for women there are two. There are these two areas of kispeptin because we have the need for luteinizing hormone pulse for our menstrual cycle, and we have the the need for appetite control. So our sensitivity is because we have these two areas that can be perturbed from low intake. So when we're talking about what our needs are, overall, um, men can really get by on lower calories. This is why fasted training, intermittent fasting, ketogenic, all that kind of stuff work for men. 
But for women, it's different because our fueling needs are different. Our threshold needs within the brain for maintaining endocrine health are different. And our hormone factors come into play too. Like what's estrogen, progesterone doing for blood glucose control, for carbohydrate storage, for um, tissue breakdown. So there's all these things to consider. And that's why when we start talking about the diets and thresholds. The intermittent fasting is just counterproductive for women. And the same thing with the keto diet and paleo. Exactly. Totally. Right. And when we look at it, they're restrictive diets, right? They're all about the let's have this real restriction. Let's eliminate different foods. Women end up in a low calorie state unless they're on the ketogenic diet, but then it's too low in carbohydrate for for our bodies to function well. Yeah. You'll get pushback of, oh, I'm doing great on this for three to six months. Sure. Your body can hold on to a stress response throughout that, but Six months is really pushing it. And when you see, when you start adding exercise, heavy training in, training suffers, you're not going to get a metabolic adaptation like you will with men because we're already metabolically adapted to burn more fatty acids. Yeah, I was going to say, so all of these purported benefits that we see with keto, intermittent fasting, all that kind of stuff, male data, it's different for women. With intermittent fasting, you're training your body to get into a fat burning zone. Am I yep. correct? So for the most yep. for the most part, that's the plan, right? Like yep. you're not going to eat sugar in the morning. You're going to have some green juice. You can have coffee, but you're going to try to like keep yourself from any glucose, any kind of sugar, anything like that until later in the day. And then you start going through your fast. You're training your body to burn fat, but that doesn't work for women, but no. at all. So then there's like this whole philosophy around nutrition and training, right? When it comes to getting out on a five-hour bike ride and training your body to use fat as fuel and turning the glucose to fat so that, I mean, it's so confusing to me as somebody who is trying to figure it all out, as somebody who's an athlete. It's like one minute someone's telling me I should be intermittent fasting, which completely doesn't work for me because I work out at 11 o'clock. And so there's no fasting for me when I'm going to go do a workout. I need food. I have low blood sugar. Like none of those things work for me. And then and I I read a lot of stuff, too, you know, and and you hear that you should be using fat as fuel or, you know, get not glucose. And I'm like, I'm using gels, I'm eating bars, I'm trying to have glucose and use glucose as energy because it's easy, it's accessible. It's, I want to be fast. Like, I'm not interested in going slow. (laughs) What are we supposed to do? As women, we're just so different. And, you know, reading your book, Roar, and watching you speak and all these talks that you do, I'm so curious, like, what is the solution for women? And should we even be trying to, to burn fat as fuel? Well, I'll start with the basic exercise physiology sch- schematic. Like, the, one of the very first things you learn in exercise physiology is the fuel pathways, right? And you go through all your quick carbohydrate stores. But in order to get into fat burning, you need some carbohydrate, right? But again, based on male data. Uh, but when we look at female data as well, you do need some carbohydrate in order to get into fat burning. But when we look specifically at female physiology and where all of this occurs in the mitochondria, we as women have more of the protein there to burn fatty acids. So we have a greater capacity already in the muscle to burn fatty acids. We have estrogen that spares carbohydrate and stimulates lipase to burn more fatty acids. We have progesterone that inhibits the body from accessing muscle glycogen, so it makes you rely more on blood glucose. And these feed over to low hormone state as well. So we have the increased proteins within the muscle. We have already differences in blood glucose. We have shuttling from the liver and the muscle to other parts of the body. So women rely heavily on blood glucose, where, again, men rely on carbohydrate stores within the muscle and the liver. So when you look at metabolic efficiency, quote, training or fasted training or fat burning, it's, again, based on male data, looking at how are we going to increase fatty acid use increase those proteins of mitochondria to burn fatty acids. Because they don't have the hormones that we have. Right. Right. And to spare muscle uh, muscle glycogen. 
women are already there. Our bodies are already there for maximum fatty acid utilization, for sparing carbohydrate from the liver and the muscle because of these inherent sex differences within the muscle and also the hormones. So when we look at fueling and doing five-hour fasted rides, it can work for men. You can see these differences. But when it comes down to performance, there's no performance gain for people who have done this fasted training and low-carbohydrate intake. Like there's a detriment. We are seeing that when you're not using carbohydrate, you're also changing some of the enzymes responsible for allowing your body to use that carbohydrate and get into fat burning. So yeah, you will in the lab burn more fat, especially as a man, but that doesn't come into improvement in performance. Now for women, because we rely more on plasma glucose, we need carbohydrate just in order to keep pace or go faster because our body needs it. One, we can't access as much carbohydrate. And two, we need that plasma glucose in order to get into more of that fat burning and stimulate what's already in our muscles. So this is where I get really frustrated with the intermittent fasting and fasted training and low carbohydrate intake. Because it, you know, you come back down to the thresholds for sensitivity of, of carbohydrate intake differences between men and women, men can get away with it. Fasted training, it's changing the male physiology to be more like the female physiology, which I kind of laugh about, right? Yeah. Because totally. everyone's like, oh, do this, this is great. It's like, well, women are already there. And for women, when they start restricting carbohydrate, it backfires because your body then gets a signal, there's not enough coming in. So I'm going to store fat. And when we're looking at athletic performance and people who are training to, to change body composition, when they start restricting and and not having enough carbohydrate, it signals, let's downturn everything. And you get slower and you get fatter. So I see it all the time when I'm working with people. I see it in the literature. But the, the popular press and the, and the like outside magazines and all of those kind of outdoor magazines, they're not being responsible in the fact that they're not talking about what's happening between men and women. They're just reporting on male data. Right. They're not giving all the details. So women kind of don't, all you see is the big PR marketing right. titles, headlines, but you don't see all the details. And and that also happens when women start to go through menopause, right? We are, right. it's like a very similar thing here that I'm hearing is that we start as our progesterone goes down and our testosterone and, you know, then our estrogen and our DHEAs and then our muscles. I mean, it's kind of like we're becoming more like men. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have all these hormones and these same levels. We have to also think about our diet and increase our carbohydrates even more. So when we get into our mid to late forties and that perimenopausal state, there's so many women who go, what's going on? My, I'm, I feel like I woke up squishy overnight. I don't recover well. My training's not working for and it's because we're having a fluctuation in the ratio of estrogen and progesterone. So we'll have a lot of anovulatory cycles. We don't ovulate, we don't produce progesterone. So we start seeing all these changes. And there are more factors within the body that estrogen and progesterone do because they really affect every system in the body. So when we look at estrogen, estrogen in itself is anabolic, so it signals the lean mass development. Progesterone also works in that way in the fact that it keeps fast twitch, it keeps power. So when we lose progesterone, we start becoming slower and we don't have that power. We can't get that high intensity. So if we can't get that high intensity, then we don't have the same stress signal to kind of don't store belly fat. When we get into the postmenopausal years, so through that menopausal transition into actual flat line of estrogen progesterone, we've lost our ability or lean mass development without an actual stress from exercise and the subsequent protein follow-up. We need to be able to replace from external stresses what those yeah. hormones used to do for us. So we need to switch up our training. You see a lot of uptake of ultra runners in the older women's set because the body is really comfortable going very long and slow. Because right. that is what the body does now. We don't have power. We're losing our lean mass. 
body's really, really, really good at burning fat because we have that in our muscles anyway without estrogen. Right. But for triathletes or for faster, shorter distances, we have to look at what are we going to do to change our training so that we don't put on the belly fat, we maintain our power, we maintain our bone mass, and we can keep performing. So this is where we have a switchover in our training and our nutrition, where we have to take out that moderate intensity that to really polarize our training. So it's that top, top end or really, really, really slow, slow, slow recovery, really low end, 50% or less. And we have to look at doing high intensity, heavy lifting, followed up with a really good dose of protein in order to get that stimulus for lean mass development, in order to um, keep muscle integrity for power and explosive development. And then from a carbohydrate standpoint, we need to look at more at carbohydrates, fruit and veg, not so much quick carbohydrates, because we have a little, little bit more insulin resistance. So we have to kind of moderate our carbohydrate intake, definitely fueling with carbohydrate in and around long training sessions. You need mm-hmm. to do that, of course. But for the rest of the diet, it's more fruit, veg, looking that way for complex carbs, upping the protein. So we're looking, peri-postmenopausal women are getting around 40 grams of protein post-exercise mm-hmm. as opposed to the 30 in the premenopausal. Because without that protein dose, then we can't really stimulate lean mass development. Yeah, one of my listeners had asked me to ask you that she said that she feels like she needs a lot more protein now and that she, even when she's out, she's a cyclist, like out on the bike, on longer rides, like less carbohydrates, she doesn't do as well with carbs as she does, just in terms of feeling energetic and her performance. Yeah, totally. And I, I try to get people to understand that you want more mixed macronutrient food, especially if you're um, doing a long ride or something like that, because your body needs carbohydrate, protein, fat to actually work with each other to give you more even energy because um, they all help each other digest. Uh, and if you are looking at just carbohydrate, you get a carbohydrate dump. And in, in very postmenopausal women, that's too much of a carbohydrate dump, right? And so you get these fluctuations. And when you're looking at the insulin resistance, not necessarily during exercise is it right. come into play, but your body's already more sensitive to carbohydrate. So when you're throwing in a little bit of fat and protein, you just have more even energy. And you can hit those intensities you can bring it back down and it's better to have that mixed macronutrient than it is to just rely on the gels, the sports drinks, the chews, quick hits of carbohydrate. So you, yeah. So speaking of gels, bars, chews, and all of those things, you know, I know that you're not a huge fan of doing that when you're training, when you're out racing and training. So what would you suggest that people do And I know that you also have a background as an athlete. So coming from you with the experience of doing this and all of your years of experience, what are your suggestions for athletes that they could sub in instead of a gel or a bar? Bars are fine. But I mean, if living here in New Zealand is so expensive, like one cliff bar is five bucks. So it's not like you're going to be like down in cliff bars. Yeah. So you modify, right? So I find what works for me is taking a bag of Trek mix, you know, so you have your raisins, your nuts, maybe a little bit of chocolate, throwing it in the food processor, blending it up, rolling it into bite-sized balls, taking it with me. So it's kind of like a Lara bar, but it's way cheaper than buying a specific bar, right? You could do roasted sweet potatoes that you then take out of the fridge with some salt. Those go down really well because they're really easy to digest. You get kind of a salty sweet hit. Do they have Uh, too much fiber or... No, 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 because when they when they've been chilled, it changes the structure. It's not full of fiber that's going to like stop you up and or make you have the runs. The biggest issue really is gels yeah. because gels they're a quick hit of of energy, but they sit in the small intestines mm-hmm. and they increase the pressure. They cause an effective dehydration. So you're pulling water into the intestines in order to dilute that pressure before they can be absorbed. So we're looking at gels and the amount that's in one pack of gel. If you have a 120-pound woman using one gel 
and then you have a 170 pound guy using one gel, they're going to affect the body differently. Yeah. Right. And it's concentrated carbohydrate. Like I said, it gets out of the stomach relatively quickly, but maltodextrin fructose, not so great for women. And again, it sits in the intestines for so long. And this is what causes the bloating and the gassiness and the porta potty shuffle. Yeah. So it's like, let's use a little bit more real food. And then when you have low hits of energy, especially if you're like doing Ironman, there's always a point in the bike ride where you're like, I just don't want to eat anymore. Right. But I need to. So then you're topping up with some glucose tablets. Because glucose tablets are designed to bring blood sugar up without interfering with digestion. So it's like the base of real food, whatever fine works for you. I had one friend who did an entire race on payday bars. He's like, I love payday. It works. It's like cheap. I mean, yeah, it is a lot of like whatever works, right? For you, everyone is different. I mean, that should be like a given with this conversation. I mean, we're speaking generally, but I think on and and being on the bike is is so different, right? If I'm speaking about triathlon than running, and yeah, I mean, and there's a lot of runners that listen, right? And so you can do different things in different scenarios. So, you know, if you're doing a marathon. What do you do as a runner if you're if you're out there trying to stay, keep your glucose at a decent level, have energy? So there, uh, I'll give you some insight on um, some of the things I did with my Olympic athletes this year. Okay. Um, because they are like, I can't chew. I don't want to chew, but I need glucose and I need it. So we did a little bit of a slurry mix of um, sweetened almond milk, unsweetened whey protein, a little bit of maple syrup and water. And we had that as like the liquid kind of drink thing they could do, but they also had a real hydration. Okay. Now, no, I'm not a, not a fan of liquid calories, but it's that, that step over where we know that it's not really intensive in carbohydrate. There's enough to keep things going. There's some protein for amino acids. It helps with central nervous system fatigue and it was palatable. And they're like, I can do this and I can do this with some chunks. So that's what they did. And it was for running and for mountain biking. Yeah. So with the running, it's it's hard to chew, right? So if you're finding small things that are soft, um, we have Nature's Confectionery brand, and they have these soft gummy candies that mm-hmm. you like put in your mouth, they almost melt. So you don't have to do the sport nutrition type chomps and energy things. You can find some organic candies that are really easy and soft to chew that give you quick hits of carbohydrate especially when you're running and then have some type of protein that goes with it. They have protein waters now in the States that you can buy that are really good and you can fuel and hydrate with protein water because it doesn't have a high osmolality. So it's not like liquid calories, but it's bringing in some protein amino acids. It helps with central nervous system fatigue, also helps hydrate. So there's a couple of options that you can do when you're running. It's just really bearing in mind, what can I do when I have that impact and I don't want to chew, but I need some carbohydrate coming in. So right. it's looking for soft things that you can even you know, bite in half and they start to melt. I'm a big fan of the new protein waters that are out because, again, it's a really good way of getting some of those amino acids in without being heavily laden with stuff that's going to sit in your gut. When is it important to take BCAAs? Yeah, BCAAs are beneficial for women because it does help with central nervous system fatigue. When we get more leucine, crosses the blood-brain barrier, it helps with that. It also helps when you're in the high hormone phase and you have estrogen that crosses blood-brain barrier because the leucine counters some of the receptor sites. So it's beneficial. But if we're looking from a fueling standpoint, knowing that women burn through more amino acids, you want the BCAAs and the essential amino acids. So this is looking more at that whole protein thing. In a pinch, you can definitely use, you can make your own protein type drink with branched chain amino acids and like a lower carbohydrate electrolyte solution. So that's something you do. Yeah. I mean, I was reading in your book in Roar that you were saying that you shouldn't have carbohydrates mixed with your water because your water should be hydration and your carbohydrates should be food. And mm-hmm. I actually, you know, in my quest to find the right nutrition for me, which completely changed from two years ago for this year I didn't have any issues but it's definitely I don't feel like strong like I need to change it and I was looking at I'm not going to name any names I was looking at brands that I was putting into my water as carbohydrates which really doesn't work for me at all and I 
I just really have never been a fan of that. But I wanted to try it because there are so many people that are like, oh, yeah, I just put all my food in my water and I don't eat anything. And I think I, I psychologically need to eat a bar on the bike. I just I psycho I think I psychologically just need that. Or I was wondering why no one's taking in protein on the bike when yeah. they have the opportunity. And why would they just drink carbohydrates and not have protein when that's everything that we've ever learned is to have protein. It helps your muscles right. recover. It gives you energy. So yeah, I mean, is that like, can you explain that to me? Sure. Sports marketing. Marketing <laughs> is it's serious. Marketing is stronger than science. And you look at the history of how all this came to be, and it started back in the 60s with Gatorade, right? Yes. So Gatorade- And they're back. Started, I know. So Gatorade started not as Gatorade, but as like a little bit of salt, a little bit of lemon, and a little bit of glucose and water to help the football players down in Florida. And it was a renal physiologist that helped his flatmate do that, right? So you're looking at it's a low carbohydrate solution. It's specific for hydration. It was similar to what they would use in the hospital, but with a little bit of flavor because they're not sick. And then um, it got bought out by a company and they added artificial sugar to it. They, uh, um, so it still was a low carbohydrate solution, but then the FDA banned that sweetener. So they're like, oh no, now we need to make it as sweet. So they doubled the carbohydrate and said, now we're going to appeal to all those people who are afraid of hitting the wall in a marathon. Here's your liquid carbohydrate. And they marketed, but then did research behind it. And if you look at the original research behind Gatorade, in it, they say a three to four percent solution is best. But now you're hearing all the five, six, seven, eight percent, let's do liquid calories, based on the fear of the 80s that people were like, I'm going to hit the wall when I'm running a marathon. But the actual research doesn't support it. But the marketing machine has just pushed this whole thing of we need carbohydrate we need liquid calories we need to put it all in a bottle and it just burned into this big thing of tailwind of carbopro yes. of perpetuum all that crap right i'm not doing it wonder, <laughs> no and then people wonder why they have porta potty shuffle during Ironman, why they have big bloated guts right and it's because their body can't process it and they overeat and they overeat. Right, exactly. And they also don't talk about the fact that when you are exercising, you have a huge amount of blood flow diversion away from the gut. And when you have that, you have heat produced from exercise. You have low oxygen or hypoxia, which interferes with your intestinal cells and causes them to be a little bit leaky, causes mucosal erosion. Your gut is really sensitive. So when you start throwing in all this liquid maltodextrin, carbohydrate stuff, it affects the integrity of the intestinal cells as well, which perpetuates the diarrhea, the bloating, the GI distress. And women are more sensitive to it because of the fact that our intestines are different than men's. Right. So men will be like, oh, yeah, I just did this whole race on Tailwind. I did this whole race on CarboPro. Oh, I have a bit of gas, but I'm fine. Yeah. Or they were like but in the bathroom like, the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Exactly. Yeah. So sports marketing. I mean, I was starting to really question all of this just because it wasn't my experience. What are some tests athletes can follow to figure out how much they should be eating and drinking during a race and training? Yeah. So this is interesting because you'll have like team in training that tells people to eat every 15 minutes. And yeah. So many people gain weight and get slow because they eat so much, right? And then you have the other end of the spectrum where you see pros who are like, I did the whole thing on one bottle and neither one of them are right. But when you start coming down to what works for me as an individual, you know that when you're doing high intensity track sessions, you need some fuel to be able to get that training energy. So it's not like you're going to be eating bars and figs when you're doing track sessions. Right. But some people will be like, oh, I'm just going to use liquid calories or nothing. You do need something. So it can be, um, you know, some chomps or glucose tablets in the back end of the track session so that you actually get that training stress. When you're on a long, slow bike ride, you don't have as much blood flow diversion from the gut. So this is where you can eat bars. You can eat sandwiches. You can eat salted potatoes. You can eat a lot of, of the foods that you ordinarily would shy away from because you're like, wait, no, I need carbohydrate for this. But no, right. this is where you can start seeing and practicing. So if you have a key bike ride and you need to do it at race tempo, 
then this is where you try out some of your favorite things that you know that you could keep eating for your rice because it's palatable. See how you feel. Can right. you run off the bike after eating that? What are your energy levels? So it's a lot of biohacking where you're keeping track of what you ate, how you felt. Um, from a hydration standpoint, you can use urine dipsticks where you're peeing on it to see what your urine specific gravity is before and after to see, like, did you hydrate well enough? Are you really dehydrated? It also gives you an indication of how much fat you were burning from ketone uh, in the pee afterwards. Right. A lot of telling things in those pee sticks. So it's just like dialing in by trying in key training sessions to see, is that going to work for you in the race? And do you do sweat tests also? No. Uh, No. Okay. Why not? Not at all. I get frustrated with sweat tests too because, again, it's a marketing thing. Okay. This is awesome. Yeah. Uh, I hate it because I get all these questions about sweat tests, but sweat tests, they don't tell you anything, right? So if you are in the high hormone phase of the menstrual cycle or on an oral contraceptive pill, your sweat composition is going to be completely different than when you're in the sugar pill week or the low hormone phase. Um, It also depends on what you ate the night before. also depends on the environment you're in being tested. Is there a fan? Is there not a fan? Is it on your normal bike? or not. So economy comes into play. Also depends on change of seasons. Is it between winter and spring? Is it between summer and autumn? All of these things inter- interact with what your body produces in sweat. And then the biggest thing about sweat is where they collect it is just telling of what's happening in that one particular area of the skin. And it does not indicate what you need from what your body needs. So we have all these sweat tests that then say, oh, well, you need a thousand milligrams of sodium per hour based on your sweat Well, maybe on that one sweat test, you might think I do, but actually you can afford to lose up to 50% of your, of your sodium stores and be fine. Unless you suffer from um, syndrome of inappropriate aldosterone secretion, which is what a lot of hyponatremia stuff comes to play. We had a guest on the podcast recently who suffers from that, actually. So she has to dial in and have more sodium. But for the general person who's getting these sweat tests because, you know, they're like, oh, I'm cramping, I'm having bloating, and and, and I need to eat more sodium. No, it's because you're eating all the other sport shit food that really interferes with your gut. So this so is like so nutrition. eye-opening because I feel like I, you know, I'm sitting there following this sweat test that I did for the race. And... I feel like I don't need that much water. I don't need that much. Like I'm good, you know, and then I'm like yeah. on the run going to the bathroom every five minutes and I'm so annoyed. You know, I'm not a heavy sweater. Like I've done, you know, I've done all the research of like what I should be looking for and, and the test is not working. That's what I'm finding yeah. is that all these things right. that I'm reading are like worthless because yeah. it's like it doesn't make sense for me. So I'm like starting to get into this phase where I'm questioning everything and I'm really dialing good. in. Yeah. Which is when I read Keep your book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's like you sweat out more than you can take in, right? And you cannot physically drink as much as you sweat and absorb it either. So that's the other thing about how much you sweat per hour. It's all about moderating dehydration. It's not about staying in a euhydrated state. Right. It's about slowing the rate of dehydration. How do you slow the rate of dehydration? You drink something that is functional to the intestines for fluid absorption. So again, it comes back to physiology, the fact that you have this blood flow diversion. You want to work with your intestines. So it's a 3 to 4% carbohydrate solution. So you're looking at 3 to 4 grams of carbohydrate per 100 mil. Or how do we translate that into imperial? It's around uh, 8 grams of carbohydrate four ounces I think it works out to be I don't know and you need some sodium and that's it you don't need the potassium potassium is good for post-exercise rehydration but the biggest thing during exercise is having a little bit of carbohydrate preferably glucose and sucrose because they work with the intestines and sodium for fluid uptake so that's it You need functional hydration. I really like the idea of being able to look at your glucose and your glucose levels during performance and I'm loving Super Sapiens. What are your thoughts on 
this technology and being able to look at that as a marker for performance? Yeah, right now they're doing a lot of data collection because we see all this stuff, right? And there isn't any guidelines to understand it yet. So it's interesting because you can biohack on yourself, right? And yeah. for women, I think it's more important to understand what's happening with blood glucose. Again, because we go through plasma glucose more so than we go through muscle glucose, mm-hmm. muscle glycogen. So understanding those hits and misses, knowing that there's a transition between the time you eat and the time it shows up in your blood. So when you start seeing things that go low, it's a bit late. Yeah. So you also have to know, like when you take caffeine, how does that affect your blood glucose? Because caffeine clears it. So there's lots of benefits in in data diving and biohacking yourself. As for making like generalized guidelines of what we need to do for each person, and that's not there yet. Yeah. And what we need to do for men in this sport at high intensity, what we need to do for women in this sport, high intensity, low intensity, there isn't enough data to be able to dial that in yet. But for women, we know that there's changes between the menstrual cycle, blood glucose control, and insulin sensitivity. We see this also in what we're looking at from an RER standpoint, so your gas exchange standpoint between the menstrual cycle phases. So as a woman, being able to dial it in, if you naturally cycling on an OC or an IUD or if you're on hormone replacement therapy, I think there's benefit, yeah. total benefit to it. But we don't have enough to be able to generalize until this is what you need to do as a woman who is age 20 to 30. But it will come. So, I mean, you just it just kind of started yeah. as this kind of use. I mean, this has been used yeah. in diabetes and for yeah. decades, right? So it'll come. Yeah. I think for me, I've been just looking at the fluctuations, right? Because we talk about carbohydrates and protein. So I look at what do I eat that my blood sugar isn't dipping or going back and forth? I mean, obviously it does that all day anyway. One of the things that we do know for women who are in a low energy state is they become very hypoglycemic at night. So with a hypoglycemia, it also interrupts your sleep. So it's a good way of seeing if you're eating enough and recovering well is if you become hypoglycemic or have these dips at night and then you can overlay it with your sleep and see all these perturbations, even if you don't fully wake up. But it's really important for getting that sleep data with your blood glucose overnight to see, are you getting enough food? Are you in a low energy state? And are you recovering properly? Right. This is where I like the super sapiens. Yeah. Not so much during exercise or daily stuff, but really what's happening at night when your body's supposed to be repairing. And we're finding some really, really cool data in women who are low energy on the cusp of hitting full relative energy deficiencies. Stay tuned. What is coming up for you? My new book with Celine Yeager called Level Up is coming out. So excited. It's all about peri and, and postmenopause. So it's a like the follow-on from where Roar ends. And we have a lot of courses still coming out through Dr. Stacey Sims, a lot of mini courses. So it's a deep dive into things like protein, protein, iron, collagen. So when you want to know something really specific about one area, then that's what we're doing too. Do you work with people one-on-one or not anymore? On occasion, I do. Um, Obviously, I, you work with Olympic athletes and teams. Yeah, yeah, sort of. When It all comes about because their coaches were my teammates. So it's right. kind of like, can you help? It's that mentoring process, right? So that's where that comes in. But with regards to working one-on-one and um, things like that, I still do them. But I also have two women that just graduated under me from their PhDs. So they are also in the same mindset, understand it, and are taking out people. So there's the the team. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Me. That's great. So, yeah. Yeah. So there is the opportunity, definitely, to have um, some Dr. Stacey Sims touch points. So, yeah. I feel like so many people that I know will tell me they bonked and they're like these great athletes. And I'm like, why, why can't you get your, your nutrition right? You know, and they're just... I know. I can't wait to read your next book because after reading your first book, it's totally game changing. I mean, I'm and I'm definitely my whole body changed in the last two years between not doing the triathlons and then just getting older. Nope. Right there. That's why we wrote the book. <laughs> That's why we wrote the second book. No, but I'm like, I w- I've been doing Inside Tracker. Do you know those guys too? Oh, yeah. So I've been doing their biomarkers for like two, two and a half years. And they're actually one of my advertisers, but... 
I mean, thank God for them because my vitamin D was like in a ditch and somehow I got my testosterone back up without doing any kind of hormone replacement. I just was taking ashwagandha. Nice. Huge fan of adaptogens. Yeah. I take cordyceps. I do all the Chinese medicine. Now, I know you look at food as fuel and that's your go-to. So what are your thoughts on Chinese medicine and adaptogens in terms of diet and nutrition and I'm a huge fan of adaptogens um I got uh introduced to them really when I was at Stanford and one of my mentors was one of the top researchers for the uh, complementary alternative medicine with NIH and Columbia and she was looking specifically at black cohosh for menopausal flushes and then some other stress-oriented ones like ashwagandha maca shishandra And then as much as I was traveling at that time, working over Tour de France and and racing myself, like on the pro circuit for the U.S. on the NRC, using adaptogens was just a life changer in the fact that it kept cortisol low. It kept um, my hormones pretty constant in the fact that I never got into any kind of amenorrhea or menstrual cycle dysfunction helped with jet lag. It just helped with cognitive focus. It was amazing. And so when I was doing research with Freddie and looking at how all these adaptogens just supported the stress systems in the body and helped mitigate some of the issues that women have with dropping testosterone, becoming estrogen dominant, I still use them now. Uh, And I tell women who are in perimenopause to start with with ashwagandha. I have young teenage girls who are having menstrual cycle irregularities and dysfunction because they're young, but also because of of high training loads, Mm -hmm. having them use some ashwagandha or shishandra to help with that. And it just gives you that even keel. So then you don't have to look for hormone replacement or having to go on oral contraceptive pill, which I definitely don't advise for young girls. So they're amazing. And they're their plants actually works with your body. So it's not like taking a pharmaceutical. I mean, you, totally can't, you, c- you circle them in and out. Like you can't just, it's not something you take forever. Yeah. It's like something. Right. Yeah. Exactly. What are your thoughts on just hormone replacement therapy? I, yeah. So I sit in a place where I would rather alter training and nutrition and use adaptogens. Yeah. And then if that doesn't help, then start looking at what kind of hormone replacement, because there are some women who totally need it. But what I'm finding now in some of the circles is that people automatically gravitate to it because yes, that, that marginalization of women don't age yeah. and you need to not lose your hormones instead of looking at ways that we can get the same effects on the body by using different structures, people are automatically going to hormone replacement therapy. Um, and there is a time and a place for it. I'm not anti it. I yeah. just feel like you should try everything you can first because hormone replacement therapy isn't for the rest of your life. Right. It's to get you through things, right? And people aren't going to allow you to stay on it for the rest of your life. Right. So it's let's see what's happening with the body changes now, support the body now, change up our training, nutrition, understand that we can't have as high a cortisol level. So we need to moderate our training, boost it up with um good nutrition, use our adaptogens. And then again, like if you're really struggling and you're finding things are just awful, there's a time and a place to to try the different menopause hormone therapies that are out there for sure. I know you're super busy keeping everyone healthy and fit, but what are you doing these days to stay fit? Are you still cycling? I don't ride as much as I'd like to. Unfortunately, I'll ride maybe once a week outside on dirt and gravel. and uh, have Zwift and a Watt bike. So I did that this morning. I'll do some running. And I do a, a go to CrossFit, but I do a lot of strength work. You do. I do go to the gym. Yeah. And do a lot of plyo work. Um, I'll play around with mobilization and stuff. Uh, a little bit of something every day. But I love intervals. I'm like, oh, hill reps, yay. <laughs> 10K run, yeah. hill reps, yay. So, yeah, I'm all about that high-intensity stuff just because it works for my body. I love the way I feel about it. I'm not training to race anymore yeah. because I feel like every time I sign up for a race, it gets canceled because of COVID. Yeah. What races would you sign up for now if you were going to do a race? There's a couple of good gravel mountain bike type races. There's um there's this one epic one that I wanted to do. It's called the Motu Challenge, mm-hmm. 
where it's 75K mountain bike up a hill, you switch bikes, and then it's a 90K road ride back into town. Cool. So it ends up being, yeah. So it's that kind of stuff where it's a challenge and it's an adventure, but it's not typical triathlon. It's not typical multi-sport because I'm bored with that stuff now. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm on the cusp. I definitely, I mean, there's no gravel that I'm aware of in New York that I can get out on, but I just signed up for my first century. Which Yeah, you should do the Rafa Women's Ride. Every year they do the hundred, the century ride, either hundred mile or a hundred K. Yeah. And so the hundred K is everywhere. It's worldwide. Oh, it's like virtual. You can do it outside mm-hmm. and their small groups are actually meeting and doing their proper Rafa ride, or okay. you can do it virtual. Cool. But look it up. Yeah, I will. I know that they do. Yeah. They have small groups that are going in the States. Cool. Um, it's super fun. Yeah. But I love it. I love that kind of stuff. Anyway, this has been awesome. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me, marnieonthemove1 at gmail.com, and let me know what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of. If you have questions for our guests, just reach out. 